If you have a Bible, we will be in Matthew chapter 9. I know it's Advent, so of course let's jump right to the middle of the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 9, we're going to be considering verses 35 through 38, which I'll read for us now. It says, And Jesus went, went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the ministry of the Lord Jesus, who is, in fact, the great shepherd of the sheep. We all, all of us, Lord, were like lost sheep in this world, um, living in Adam, apart from you, full of sin and iniquity and darkness. Lord, and you gathered us into your fold. You gathered us into your barn. You, Lord, have brought us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Now, as we consider shepherdless sheep, Lord, and and, and the work of Christ to gather his people, I pray that you would not only help us to understand you and, and your heart for sinners better, but that we would also, Lord, understand what it is our, our calling and ministry in this world is. We thank you and we praise you in the name of your Son, and amen. Now this section, this section here, Matthew nine thirty five to 38, reveals the heart of Jesus to sinners. It reveals a man, powerful in deed and word, who gathers in the lost sheep of Israel to heal and instruct them and in what it means for themselves to be true shepherds. Because th- that is another thing. Uh, we, we often consider the fact that we are sheep and that our great shepherd brings us in, but we are also a um, flock of shepherds. And I think this part is lost on a lot of us. We are sheep, but we are also a flock of shepherds. And the good shepherd wants to teach his people how to be good shepherds. Jesus says two things in this passage right out of the gate that I, I, I want to deal with because they seem contradictory. And, and we often sometimes r- really just, we are reading his words so quickly, we miss things very easily. Now, what Jesus says is that the people are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That's what he says in verse 36. But then verse 37, he says that the harvest is plentiful. So my question immediately is, how is there fruit to be gathered in if there's no shepherd? Who has been tending to Israel? Who has been preparing them? He doesn't come and find nothing but weeds. He doesn't come and find nothing but thorns. He comes, and what he finds is a field that has been farmed well, that is ready to be picked, that's ready to be harvested. And so my question is, if there's no farmer, how is there a yield? Jesus is revealing the inability of men to remain faithful in leading Israel, but he also is revealing that God himself is the true shepherd over Israel and the world, who has been preparing Israel and indeed the whole world for the coming Messiah, regardless of the fact that the shepherds were a total joke. That's what we've been looking at for the last three weeks. During these 14 generations, 
The shepherds of Israel are, are weak and ineffectual and ungodly. There are a great deal of Gentiles who are treating Israel as prey. And yet, all along, was the true shepherd of Israel ever absent? But this is what we were dealing with also back in Samuel. They want a king. They, Israel wanted a king like the nations. And, and, he, and they said, well, God said this through Samuel, why do you need a king when you have a king? And so whenever we're talking about shepherds in the household of God, shepherds in your household, shepherds at your business, right? There are shepherds everywhere. And they are good or, and they are, or they are bad. But no matter what, who is the true shepherd of the whole earth? Whose fold is this? Whose sheep is it? Whose world is it? Whose field is it? And the people of God need to remember this. It does not matter in the end how good or bad your shepherds are, because what you have, no matter what, is a shepherd in heaven who is in complete control of what's going on, who knows what's best for you, and is working all things out for the good of those who love him. Remember that Jesus came in the fullness of time. And so the fullness of time, he, he comes, and what he, what he finds is the usual case. The shepherds of Israel are a joke, and yet there is a people ready. Everywhere he goes, people hear what he says, people see what he does, and, and people want a piece of, of the action. People want to be near him. People want him. They cry out to him. They bring their sick to him. They want to hear his sermons. He, he doesn't have enough space, so he has to stand in a boat and float on a lake so that he can talk to people. Why? Because the, there is fruit everywhere. Because his father and our father was working hard. <laughs> was working hard. Now, J.I. Packer said the doctrine of providence teaches Christians that there are never in the grip of blind forces. Fortune, chance, luck, fate. All that happens to them is divinely planned, and each event comes as a new summons to trust, to obey, to rejoice, knowing that all is for one's spiritual and eternal good. This was his comment on Romans 8.28. Now, during the 14 generations, Israel appears to wander around leaderless as the shepherds of Israel reject their true calling, their true mission in the world. However, their true shepherd, Yahweh, never deserted them. And in the seeming chaos, Yahweh tended them till they are plentiful for harvest, prepared for Christ and his ministers to go out and gather them in. And I, I do not think that you live in a different age. This is part of what goes on in the Christian church. We're waiting for things to happen. We're waiting for someone to do something. When is someone going to deliver us from this body of death? Well, we've been delivered from this body of death. We don't need to overcome the world. The world is overcome. And so why are we sitting around waiting for other people to do things, waiting for someone to do something, waiting for things to happen, waiting for things to be prepared for us? You were not born in the 14th century. You were not born in France. You were not born in Scotland. This is not, you know, 4044. There will be a 4044, I'm pretty sure. Right? This is not 880. This is 2022. And you are Americans. You are speaking English. You are here. You are now. Why? Because the field is ripe for harvest. Where the people of God are, there are shepherds. Now, what Jesus is doing through this section is reiterating that his mission is the church's mission. Jesus is modeling for his followers what he expects of them. The paragraph of Matthew 9, 35 to 38 is a summary. It's, it's a transitional point in the book of Matthew. He is, it summarizes Jesus' activity up to this point. Chapters 5 through 9 saw him teaching and preaching and healing, all those things that made Jesus known. 
for being a man mighty in deed and word. That's what his disciples said to him. In the road to Emmaus, they did not know who they were talking about or talking to, but they said, oh, Jesus, he was man mighty in word and deed. And what we see here, a man mighty in word and deed. He's going around, and what is he doing? He's going to synagogues, he's preaching, he's healing, he's, he's mending the people. He's gathering in. He's preparing his disciples. He's, a, he's very active. Why? Because the work was prepared for his hands to do. He, did not, he was not born and said, God the Father, why in the world did, am I born now? Why didn't you send me in David's day? Why didn't you send me in Abraham's day? Why didn't you send me 3,000 years from now? Right? In, in North America. Why, why not then? He never said that. He said, the, the, to do my Father's will is my food. There is work for my hands, and so let's get to work. Now, everything that I'm going to say is predicated on Ezekiel 34. This is a great example where there was a great deal of prophecy, a great deal of explanation, right? Foreshadowing here, God explains. The shepherds of Israel should be ashamed of themselves. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to shepherd Israel myself, right? And this is always what God is doing. God is always dealing with fallen men, who he expects to lead his people, but, but he, what he always wants everyone to remember is that he himself has not gone anywhere. He's working and moving. And exactly this time last year, I did a sermon on um, John chapter 10, which is about the very same thing. That's when Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. But there's a piece of it here that links this to the 14 generations. So if you want to know more about Jesus the good shepherd and, what, and the flock that he found— John chapter 10 is a great place to start, but it's all predicated on what Ezekiel had to say about the living God. As was read for us today in chapter 34 of Ezekiel, verses 5 through 6, it says, So they were scattered, because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered, they wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over the face of the earth, with none to search for or seek them. Because we're going to find out the only people really seeking them are the Pharisees. The Pharisees want all the sheep to come back to Judea. But there's nobody, right? And, and we find out that their program is impossible. This is why Jesus said, all you who are, are tired and who are sick of your labor, come to me and I will give you rest. Because the only program to return to, is, to God the Father and Israel was one that the Pharisees had, which nobody could carry. Nobody could live up to it. And so God is telling everyone he's going to do. Listen, there's going to come a time where you will have no shepherd and you will be scattered over the whole earth and I myself will come and find you. Jesus is the true shepherd. He is concerned for his sheep. It's what the lengthy discourse of John 10 is about and I encourage you all to read it. Jesus' incarnation reveals that he is the Lord God of Ezekiel 34, 11 through 16. He is going to come. He is going to to feed us. He is going to gather us in. He's going to protect us. He is going to lead us. He seeks and rescues the lost sheep of Israel. He does it, and now he is preparing to send out his disciples to do likewise. Jesus reveals that the triune God is the true shepherd of Israel, who we are supposed to imitate in our everyday ministry. You are the lost sheep of Israel, and you have been gathered in and, and what you're doing here this, right now is learning how to go out and be good shepherds. Because you're a flock of shepherds. Now the heart of this, this ministry that Jesus has is found in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. 
because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Now, I have a question for you right here. We're, we're conservative Christians. And how often do we look at the shepherdless sheep and we say, look at those fools. Look at those morons. That's what you get when you, when you follow right? all of those false teachers out there. This is what Plato will get you. This is what Darwin will get you. This is what believing in yourself will get you. We see the shepherdless sheep and we point and we mock and we belittle. Jesus saw them not as a problem, but as an opportunity. The opportunity, in fact. And and when he saw shepherdless sheep, it drew from within him compassion. Compassion. We are fighting a culture war with no culture. That is what I have determined. We are rootless evangelicals who have no idea what we're talking about. And what we are offering... Right? When you stop and think about it, what is the evangelical world offering this world of darkness and unbelief? Now, when we see shepherdless sheep, is our first response compassion? The word compassion is a strong emotional word. It's a word that there is a lot to it. It's very hard to actually translate into English. In case you were wondering, I worked on this several times this week. The verb in Greek is splonknizome. Okay, just trying to say it is hard. <laughs> trying to, to translate it is even harder. It means warm, sympathetic pity felt deep within the inner man. It means to make another's circumstances our own. This is the, the best way that I can, I've learned how to define it. If, if I know someone who owes $100 and they're heart sick because they don't know how they're going to pay their bills, and I only have $100, I go and I, I give the $100 to them so they can pay their debt, and they are now rejoicing, and now I am suffering because I don't know what I'm going to do without the $100. That's what compassion means. And, and it means when you see other people and what they're going through, you feel it as if it's you that it's happening to. It's more than empathy. Okay? There, there's an incarnational aspect to it. And, and it's helpful to us when we see how this word is used throughout the rest of Matthew. It's a, it's a theme that he brings out quite often. In Matthew 14, 14, it says, When Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, did he just stand around feeling bad for them? No, his compassion led to action. Matthew 18, 27. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. His compassion led to him actually physically doing something. Matthew 20, 34. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. His compassion is what made him touch their eyes to heal them. In each case, there's not only sympathy with a person's need, but also a practical response which meets that need. When you're driving down the road, it's not compassion when you see someone who's suffering on the side of the road and you keep driving. That is whatever you're dealing with internally, that is not compassion. Compassion only occurs, in my opinion, based on these verses, when you see something, you internalize the suffering or the circumstance that you see, and then you act upon it. If you don't act upon it, it's not compassion. Jesus' emotional response led to actual physical action. Now, Jesus had compassion for God's people who suffer and are leaderless. The phrasing 
comes directly from Ezekiel 34. It also comes from Numbers 27. Uh, this is my, my point earlier. This is a theme in the Bible. In Numbers 27, uh, verses 17 to 18, where Joshua is appointed as Moses' successor so that the people may not be like sheep without a shepherd. It's never what God wants. He ultimately does not want his people to be shepherdless. But when they reject him, what, is, what happens? When they reject him as king, what did they get? They got Saul, right? And then David. So when you reject the Lord as, uh, as your shepherd, he will cause you to be shepherdless. But that's not his intent. He doesn't want that. Ultimately, for your good, what he wants is for you to have strong shepherds. Biblical shepherds. Shepherds who are not servant leaders in this modern um, way that we talk about it. Don't get me started. But actual shepherds. If you've ever met an actual shepherd, which I have, you don't think servant leader. Not the way they describe it in, in modern Christian leadership books. God does not want us to be leaderless. He does not want us to be with bereft of shepherds. Also in 1 Kings twenty two seventeen, there's a vision of Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep that have no shepherd. And the reason that this is prophetically said is because their king is going to die. And then who ultimately took away the throne of Israel? God did. Why? Because they rejected him as shepherd. So when we reject him as king, when we reject him as a shepherd, he will remove these things from us. But it's because what he wants is, is like the people when Jesus came. Are they ready for someone to lead them well? Are they, are they ready for someone to come amongst them and, and, and show them the true and living God? And how did they get that way? Fourteen generations of no king in Israel, no prophet in Israel, no leader in Israel, no, no true and abiding one. 587 years. 587 years. They went without a shepherd. Why? Because God wanted them to want one. <laughs> Not only to want one, but want the right kind of one. And that's why when Jesus comes in the fullness of time, everybody's like, yes, this, this right here. Look at this guy. He's going around and he's teaching with authority and he cares about the blind. He touches lepers. He will feed us. He will sit down and feed us. And then what does he tell his uh, uh, disciples? Feed the sheep. Feed the sheep. This is what he is, God the Father is concerned about, is us knowing that he is our shepherd and that his under-shepherds are sent to, to, to us as a blessing, as something, right, not like the nations, but wholly different, wholly other. And Jesus demonstrates that throughout his ministry. Going back to Zechariah, chapter 10, verse 2 through 3, the, the people of Israel were told that they were going to have their shepherds removed. It says in Zechariah 10, 2 through 3, For the household gods are nonsense, and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. Right? I know what it, God the Father is saying. Listen, I get it. I understand what's happened to Israel. And, and, and these are not the shepherds that I told David to be. Go back and read Second Samuel 7, and you'll see what kind of shepherd I wanted in Israel. And these men are not that, and so you're going to go without them, and you're going to wander around all over the whole earth, and then what I'm going to do is send someone who's going to make you majestic like a steed. Majestic like, <laughs> like a steed. I've always wanted to be majestic like a steed. I'm just kidding. I've never thought that before. But it's a beautiful image. Now, I don't know if you guys, not a lot of us, I think Lanny can talk about this, but um, 
I will share one experience. I used to go to the horse track quite a bit in my former life, before Christ. And, and, and we could talk about all the fun I had there. But my favorite thing was to go way down at the end of the, end of the track where the horses would come around to, for the last two furlongs home. And you stand down there, and you've got 24 thoroughbred horses, and there's no sound on earth like it. It's amazing. And, and, and I didn't know about this first, and I, and I immediately had that image of just thundering steeds, right? Somebody spent $30,000 to make this horse as majestic as possible, as powerful as possible, that just thunders. It's humbling to hear this, the, the power of this. And it's not something none of us, even if we served in the military, experienced a cavalry charge. But for them, the power of a war horse thundering across the ground, that is what he's going to make Israel like. Why? When he returns to them, and shepherds them. But then, right, so we, we quickly do the thing that Israel did. Okay, so then when he comes, what he's going to be is he's going to be a man with a bullwhip, and he's going to go out and he's going to train and get that horse to submit. Well, no, what we actually find out is that the, the actual shepherd is going around and healing the sick, teaching in synagogues, gathering the people of Israel upon the ground and feeding them fish and bread because they're hungry, so hungry because they were out there listening to him instead of worrying about their circumstances. That is what the Lord intends for us. Now, there's an old way of breaking a horse, not with a whip, not with fences, but the natives used to do it here in in North America, and that is you take the wild horse down to a river, And it's a very gentle way to break a horse, and actually a a great deal easier. You climb onto the horse, and you let it kick and buck as much as it wants. It's not going to fall down and hurt itself. It's not going to trip. It's not going to break a leg. And what you do is you let it kick and kick and kick and kick and kick and kick and kick until it can't fight against the water anymore, and it gets tired, and it'll do whatever you want. Now that is what the Lord Jesus did, right? He let us work out our own angst, our own frustrations, our own power, our own authority, until we're ready to just submit. Never the sound of a bullwhip. Now, is the church in North America what you would call a majestic steed? Thundering upon the fields of battle. Thundering upon the fields of culture. Thundering upon the fields of education. Thundering upon marriage and family and business. Jesus invaded the Gentile nation of Judea to free his people from the kind of leaders like Pharaoh with the bullwhip in hand, right? What, what did Pharaoh use? What was his power? You were going, you're slaves. You're now going to work. You're going to do just the same amount of work without the, without the materials that you need. And when they fled, what did he do? He, got on, he hooked his chariot up to a horse, which is the same in, in those days as a tank. Right? And we, we see plenty of this. How does China keep the peace? Is it through going out and healing the sick? How does North America keep its power in the world? Through F-18s. That's how. Right? And then we sell the enemies the same, well, or we invade their country and leave it all behind. Uh, and then they have the same weapons we do, so then we have to, what? Invent new ones. It's called the military-industrial complex. There, there's, a, <laughs> there's a reason that it exists, to feed itself. Right? Right-handed power, it's called. That's what people are used to. That's what people are used to. Not so much becoming like a majestic steed as being ridden under by majestic steeds. 
That is what Israel is used to. That's what they had with the Greeks. That's what they had with the Egyptians. That's what they had under Pharaoh back in the day. It's what they have under Herod. And Jesus has come, and what he is doing is he's going to gather in. He's going to take the wild horse down to the river. He's going to tame it. He's going to climb on it, and then he's going to ride over his enemies. And it's going to look very different than, than what the Romans do when they take the field. And, and, and he's invaded Judea. This, right? this is why they're afraid. This is why they're trying to kill him. Again, the right-hand power. They want Jesus dead. They don't want any other king. They don't want any other powers. They have all the power, and they're not going to share it. Now, here's a question, because this has gotten a little meta. Are you caught, does your wife have to do the same amount of work with fewer supplies? This was a question I asked recently with my wife. I was like, things have been a little tight lately, you know, and we keep putting the same amount of gas in the car. I hadn't really thought about the fact, are you having to do the same amount of work with less stuff? Are you like the Israelites in Egypt? Am I making you make uh, bricks without straw here? I'm not going to tell her what she said. It's a private conversation. But it gave me a little something to think about. Right? And, and parents, I think you know a little something about this. You know, it, it takes a lot of work to get up off the couch, go across the room, to instruct the child, to open the Bible, to tell them what they've done. You know what's easier to do is threaten. If you do that again, I'm going to get up and I'm going to go hands-on. And, and everyone's like, oh, my God. And then they keep doing it anyway because that's not discipline. But now what you've become is the guy who's threatening everyone. Now, if you're parenting like that, if you're husbanding in this way, if you go to work and you're treating your employees this way, right, this is what we're used to. This is the way the world works. Do what I tell you or I will crush you. Do what I tell you or the tanks will ride over you. Do what I tell you or I'm going to go hands-on and it's not going to be pretty. And people wonder why, like, the police state that we live in, and it's because when morality and law go out the window... Right? You now have to sell the used military equipment to the police departments because the police departments now have to go hands-on instead of talking people down. My father was a policeman for 32 years. He never fired his gun in anger, drew it only once on the job because you know what he, he, he learned to do early on is to talk to people. Find out why they're doing what they're doing. Get them the help that they need. He would show up on his days off to guys who he'd pulled over they don't have a license, but they're trying to get to their work. He would go, and he would take them. And, and right, why? Why would he do that? Because are you going to get further with that, or are you going to get further by beating them with a stick? Now, parents, fathers, mothers, husbands, what kind of authority is going on in your home? Is it the heavy-handed kind? Is it the threatening kind? Is it work, the same amount of work with fewer supplies? Because Israel was just like the nations. They're the people of God. They have the scriptures. They understand what their calling is in this world. And yet Jesus comes and invades them, and he's unlike anything that they were expecting. Now, is it possible even us might have the same problem? Then when Christ shows up in circumstances, when Christ calls us to lay down our lives for our wives, when Christ calls us, to raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord? Is it possible at times we don't know what we're doing? We think we do, but we actually don't. It's possible, right? If, if it's not, we don't need to keep having these services. We could just stop now. You can have all your money back from the tithes, and you can go on your merry way. Now, you're here because you're, you're admitting, I think on some level, that things are not the way that they should be. 
Okay, and there's an there are always ought to be an element of that when we come to service. Things are not as they should be. God is doing things we don't understand. My my wife and I, my kids and I, my job, my neighbors, I have all these problems. And on some fundamental level, you're here because what you see out there is not what it should be. And it seems chaotic. And what you do is you come here and you are reminded that it's not chaos, that there is a shepherd in heaven, and you need to act like him. You need to be concerned for those who, are, who cannot con- be concerned for themselves. Because, right, that's, if you think about what parenting is, why are you so worried about them running into the street? Because you know that a two-ton car will crush them. They don't know that, right? They can't even take care of themselves. And when we go and we have homelessness problems and we have poor problems, we have psychological problems and we have drug problems and we have Biden problems. And we think, you know, this world is chaotic. I wish somebody were in charge. I wish somebody could do something. I wish somebody could go out there and get these morons in order. (laughs) And then you go home and you threaten your children. Right? And this is where Jesus comes and says, listen, no, this isn't the way that it's done. This is not the way that it's done. He gathers them in. He opens the word. He instructs them. He heals them. He provides for them. He's concerned for them. Now, what what was going on in this country that he invaded Judea? There were shepherds. There were, in fact, shepherds. And, and, and there, there's a few. And for historical purposes, I'm going to explain just a few of them. There's actually a lot, a lot more than we realize. But there are some that we've heard a great deal about. We all know who Pharisees are. We know who Sadducees are. But there's also a group called the Essenes. Now, there's a reason that most of us have not heard of them. There's a reason they're not mentioned in the New Testament, I think. And that is because most of them became Christians. So it was not like a competing party like the other two. Because if, if, you, if you go to the Dead Sea Scrolls, this was one of their libraries that they kept in caves. They, they rejected the, the religious order of Jerusalem. They rejected the Pharisees, the Sadducees, foreign rule, the worldliness. And they would go and live in these communities. And it's quite obvious, I think, that John the Baptist was one of them. But also, when you read about the kind of lifestyle they had, if you turn to Acts chapter 2, 3, and 4, it's exactly the way the church lived at the beginning. And I think it explains why you don't hear about them in the New Testament, because most of them became Christians. But, but the, right, tell, right this is, they were people who rejected, and so what they did is they created ghettos out in the desert. Now, this is something that we, all, we, we still have amongst us, isn't it? Fundamentalists. You're like, we're going to just reject everything. There's no culture war. We want no part of it. We don't even want to come in contact with it for a war. And we're going to go and live in this, in this little community, and we're going to live unto ourselves, and we're going to be ascetics, and we're going, to just, we're going to separate from the world. We're going to separate from other Israelites. We're going to just go out here and live by ourselves. And they were very different from the Sadducees, who only believed that you, all you needed was the Torah. Forget all the rest of Scripture. All you need is what Moses said in Hebrew. That's, that's all there is. And now what you have are what? New Testament Christians, right? Red-letter Christians. I hate red-letter Bibles. That's why I got a Bible, a study Bible that has a red cover, because all the words in it are in red. Get it? Haha. <laughs> okay. I knew that was a high-level joke when you have to explain it. It's not funny. But you still have Sadducees amongst us. They were people who didn't believe in the supernatural and picked and cho- chose what they wanted out of the scriptures. And what you have now are modern Christians who don't believe in the supernatural world who pick and choose what kind of verses they want. Then there are the Pharisees, or I like to call them the Presbyterians. 
because they were super self-righteous. They knew the law. They were super ascetic. Internally, they were rotten as, all, as anything you've ever seen, but externally, everything looked great. There's a reason Jesus sat down and said, listen, let's talk about the heart, not so much about the external actions, but what's going on inside. Because you, you are dead man's tombs, whitewashed on the outside. And, and those guys pr- are very prominent, and, and I think they're still very prominent in our own day. Right? It doesn't matter what goes on internally. What matters is what you conform to externally. Okay? And we love the law so much so, we're going to make extra laws to protect the law. No. Is that... <laughs> Does that sound like, okay, maybe not so much here in America, but this is, right, the, the, the Puritans come to mind, or at least what we think the Puritans are. We're going to follow these rules. We're going to do it. We're going to create the halfway covenant because we have to protect the covenant. And if you don't know about that, don't look into it because it's like, wow, guys, seriously, you're going to create like a half covenant? Anyway, it's nonsense. And, and the parties that Jesus came in contact with when he was here, those who are septists, those who are liberals, who, who pick and choose what scriptures they want, who don't believe in the supernatural world, and then the massive conservative group who look great on the outside because everything is orderly, right? They look nice. They're in the church. The church looks nice. Everything's beautiful. But inside, they were corrupt. This is what Jesus came in contact with. Now, the, there's a long history to these kinds of leaders in Israel. John chapter 10, verse 8, Jesus says, All who came before me are thieves and robbers. Now think about that. 587 years since the last king, and and the kings of Israel, what were they like towards the end? Upstanding gentlemen? God-fearing fellows? No. (laughs) And then after that, it gets even worse. And so Jesus comes along and says, Listen, everybody up to this point has been a thief and a robber. The prophets of God were sent to the shepherds of Israel with this message, as we had read for us in Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophecy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophecy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. You feed on the sheep. Now, when Jesus turns to Paul or to Peter and says, listen, feed the sheep, what he doesn't mean is go out and slaughter the sheep and eat the sheep. But this is what religious leaders in, in the Christian church often do. They feed upon the sheep instead of feed the sheep. In Luke 11, Jesus says to one of the lawyers, teacher, or one of the lawyers responds to him after giving some, right? Jesus is going around sassing everyone, as he's wont to do, putting everyone in their place. And one of the lawyers is a little, you know, mad at what he said. And, and, the, and the lawyer answers him, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And Jesus said, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to insult you. No, that's not what he says. He doesn't take his hand and kiss the ring. He doesn't bow down. He, do, he doesn't apologize. He doesn't explain. Jesus pushes on forward. Jesus said, woe to you, lawyers, also. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed, so you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. 
That's what he says to them. You, kill, you, you are the children of your fathers who were murderers, and now I am here, and my, my apostles are here, and we are going to bring in the lost sheep of Israel, and you're going to persecute some of us, including myself, and all the blood on all the other false teachers is going to fall on that generation. Now, how bad were the leaders in Israel in Jesus' day? False prophets persist. I mean, now, Augustine, who was in the 4th and 5th century, he commented on Jesus' word. He said, seek to persuade men to live well and, and yet not to be Christians. This, he's talking about false leaders. And he says, there are men who seek to persuade men to live well and yet not be Christians. By another way, they wish to climb up, to steal, and to kill, not as the shepherd, to preserve and to save. And thus there have been certain philosophers holding many subtle discussions about the virtues and the vices, dividing, defining, drawing out to their clothes the most acute processes of reasoning, filling books, brandishing their wisdom with rattling jaws, who would even dare to say to people, follow us, keep to our sect, if you would live happily. But they had not entered by the door. They wish to destroy, to slay, and to murder. Why? Because so many Christian leaders in Augustine's day were more concerned about publishing books, were more concerned about the the lecture circuit, were more concerned about the halls of academia and what seminaries they worked for and had gone to and where you came from. I don't know how many, there are wings in the church where I go to, and the fact that I didn't go to seminary is a joke. And and like, they won't even, you're like, oh, well, we were going to maybe have you do something with us, but not now because I'm not approved by the official party gatekeepers. And there's a reason I'm not in that end of the pool. Right? There's nothing new under the sun. How many, how many ministers, I'm thinking of, of, of Moore, right? If you, you guys know who Dr. Moore is. He, he was a big voice. David French was another one. Big voices in evangelicalism. Leaders of thousands, millions of people. And, the, and then in the last five years, they've proven themselves to be more concerned about their own bellies more concerned about their reputations, more concerned about the books that they sell, more concerned about their own following in their own kingdom. Now, do you have a wife and children? Do you go to church? Do you, are you a Christian because, because you're building your kingdom or his kingdom? Right? Even in your own household. I'm pointing at the very top. But what happens when you have leaders like these is that over time the sheep become like them. Right? Why are you at the work? Why, why are you at the job that you're at? Why do you have all those kids? Right? I mean, we go, we go to a church where it's like different colors of the same minivan from one end of the parking lot to the other. And what is it? Right? And, and there is a certain, I remember actually, this church specifically, when most of us could afford to buy those minivans. And there was some jokes at, at a time, and it felt a little bit like we'd all arrived somewhat. We're like, oh, yeah, we're these people now. We're like, oh, I remember when my parents were this wealthy. Yeah, I got this shiny new minivan around tax time. <laughs> Every tax time, a new family would get the same, you know, the Honda Odyssey. And, and, over, and I remember the jokes at the time, and they were funny, and, and they were not super serious. But there is this element where, like, you know what? I, you have all these kids. You, you have the Christian education. You get into the whole thing, and, and there's all this culture around it and posturing and, and, and the stuff that makes us Christians, the stuff that we're doing because we're Christian sometimes becomes the point and we, we easily lose our way and then you have people <laughs> I, I have a dear friend 
Her husband passed away. He was on the board of directors of the church. And about three months after he died, the, the, the minister of the church asked her to leave the church because it was depressing everyone. Because every time they saw her, they were reminded of, of her husband who had passed away. Okay? Now, now, what were they all about? Now, I am sure that we would never, ever, ever do anything like that. Right? We would never say anything inappropriate to a woman who has one or no children, unmarried people, blue-collar people, white-collar people. I think we're more likely to probably insult a PhD. I think a PhD would have a harder time going to this particular church, but I digress. <laughs> it's always easier to point down the street. But how often does our faith, our religion, the externals and the internals, become about a certain culture, a certain swagger, a certain impressive, look at me, I'm doing it right. Opposed to, it's the means by which we serve those who are actually in need. Because your children are going to grow up and they're going to leave. Okay? And then do you think you're going to start playing games with who they marry and what jobs they have and what schools they go to and what kind of life they're living? When, when Jesus came to Israel, Israel was a hot mess. Now, I'm post-millennial, so I think things are better than they were in Jesus' day. But if you, if you actually stop and think about it, I, I would have to agree with Jesus that the church is still a hot mess. That was one of my favorite Doug Wilson blog posts of all time. The church is a hot mess. I, was like, I didn't think we were allowed to say that phrase, but Doug did it, so I'll do it too. We are a hot mess. And we do not have a culture with which to fight the cold wars. We are concerned about our own kingdoms. It, we are concerned about libertarianism. We're concerned about economics. We're concerned about how much money we make. We're concerned about how big our houses are. We're concerned a lot about ourselves. But how many of us on a regular basis truly are people whose hearts are filled with compassion, emotion that leads to action? Right? We have a lot of emotions. <laughs> I could do a little thing. We could do a little, I'll do pictures. We'll, we'll put up the president, right? We'll put, we'll put up some transies, right? We'll just do pictures. And we'll have all kinds of emotions. But how many of us will have compassion on what we see? Now, you, 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 know, you know your neighbors, right? It's impossible to live anywhere for any amount of time and not. But what the feelings that you have about those neighbors, whether they live in the park across the street or the house next door, what are the emotions that you feel? Is it compassion? Is it something that then drives you to action? You see your children there, and they fill you with all kinds of emotions. Is it emotions that lead to actions, though? Jesus came, and he wanted to show us another way. Matthew chapter 9, verse 38, he then says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And, and I would say, in any age, I would say that God could most likely say the same thing. The problem isn't that there aren't people out there to bring in. The problem is who's going to go and get them. How many kids are growing up and leaving the church? How is the church in the Pacific Northwest doing? How is the church in America doing? Right? You look around. 
you, you read the news, you read the newspaper or listen to NPR or you listen to whatever it is that you listen to, you, tr- you turn on I, um, podcasts, you listen to them. D- does the world sound like it's ready for salvation? Does it sound like it's ready for someone to stand up and tell them what's going on? You don't need the drugs, you don't need the pills, you don't need the pot, you don't need the porn, you don't need all that stuff. And, and, we, and we see it. We see that the world needs it. And we're all, you know what, man, I sure wish there were people to go out and do something about that. I wonder who we're going to vote for for president next. Well, I'm a, I mean, I mean unless, unless there's a conservative who's going to change judges, right, there's no hope for us. That's the kind of thing we say to ourselves. Now, here in this verse, Jesus is talking about the fact that there is plenty to go out and gather in, but there's not a lot of people to send. And in Ezekiel 34, as was read for us today, it referred to the torn. He said, you don't go out and, and heal those who are torn. That, that's actually the word torn. Now, I don't think it's an accident, actually, that Paul, in Ephesians 4, uses the same word. If you turn to Ephesians 4, Paul tells us a little something, I, and I think, I, I never realized how much what he says in, in a, uh, halfway through Ephesians 4 has to do with this exact paragraph that we had read for us this morning. But Paul says this, starting in, in verse 10. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens, right? And what does Jesus say in the Great Commission? All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, go therefore. So Paul starts this with, hey, who, who descended is the same one who ascended. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain. And we know this chapter, I'm, not gonna, I, I'm running out of time, so I'm not going to read the whole thing, because that word equip. What is that word? The word is generally used in reference to act of mending something that is broken, actually. In Matthew 4.21, Zebedee and his sons are mending the nets. Mending is another form of the word equip. In 1 Thessalonians 3.10, Paul tells them that his desire is to supply what is lacking in their faith. The word supply is a form of the same word translated as mending and equipping. Equipping and mending and supplying. That's what Paul is talking about. The Lord who descended, ascended. Why? So that he could could give the apostles, the prophets, the teachers to do what? So that they could go out and change the world or they could equip the saints to go out and mend. And why would you need a mended net? Because you're fishers of men. And that is what is behind all of this. Jesus came to shepherd Israel. He wants to say, okay, listen, no matter how bad it gets, I am the true shepherd of Israel. But now what I want you to do is I want you to go out and I want you to be shepherds. Now go back to Matthew and get get your Bible. And I want to just show you something. (laughs) Because this, I wasn't even really sure, and I'm still not even totally sure what to make of this. But it says in verse 38, he says, Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. 
Now, he's telling them, hey, go and pray that, that God would send somebody to go and gather in all of this fruit. And then in the beginning of chapter 10, if you look at the, at the section here, it, it, it gives us a list of the apostles, gives us a breather and a break. And because we usually break up our Bible reading, I think we often miss what comes at the start of the next section. Verse 5 of chapter 10, it says, These twelve Jesus sent out. See that? Chapter 10, verse 5. These twelve Jesus sent out. So he says to them, guys, pray that God would send somebody into this world to do this work. And then you get a moment to breathe, and then it says, he sent them. Now, how often are you, do you pray that God would send somebody to help you with these kids? That God would send somebody to help you with this spouse? That God would send somebody to help you with the government? That God would send somebody to help this neighborhood? That God would send somebody to help Washington? And how often have you prayed? And isn't it perhaps possible that what God wants you to do is, is align your will with his, that's what prayer does, and then, in fact, you are the answer to your own prayer? Now, I'm not going to get all word of faith on us here, right? Let's um, make us all get out and talk to our wallets. Because you often are not the answer to your own prayer. But there are times when we are looking at the lost sheep, when we're considering the work that the Lord is doing in this world, where we ourselves are the answer to the prayer. You're there living next to those neighbors. You're there sitting in those cubicles. You're on the bus Right? You're at the Starbucks. You're at the store. You go to the same store. And do you ever see the same people? <laughs> I, it, it's really funny. There's, um, and this is a joke on a lot of levels. Robert's a good friend of mine. He works at the Fred Meyer here. Why? He, he works there, and I see him like three times a week. And so I, I walk by him, and he's, hey, Mike. Hey, Rob. He's a Navy veteran. He's a great guy. He also is the manager of the liquor section. But, you know, I always got to walk past that section because it's between the vegetables and the... Anyway. But I know him. And, you know, I, I, I've thought before, like, man, I sure wish there was somebody in his life. Because that's what we do, Brian. I hope somebody preaches to my siblings. I hope somebody is out there doing some good for those people. And how often are we supposed to be the answer to the prayer? Because Jesus, did he sit in heaven and just have feelings about our situation? Man, those guys down there, that sucks. Look at them. Or did his compassion get him to step down off of his his high throne, to go down into the trenches where people are actually suffering and do something about it? Okay, and that's what Advent's all about. And, And we can talk, right? This whole thing is predicated on the fact that he came and did something for us. But what he did for us was meant to then go further into the lives of our children, our spouses, our neighbors, our coworkers, our families, and Robert, who, who is working now at the Fred Meyer. Don't worry, I got that one. But this is how we have to start thinking about it. We have a good shepherd. We have a shepherd who is compassionate, a shepherd who did not stay away but came near. And we are not just dumb, stupid sheep. We are a flock of ourselves shepherds. And the point is that he equips us to go into the world to do the work of ministry, to mend the nets, to heal people, 
to have compassion on people, which is not just feelings, but action too. And so do you want, you want to celebrate Advent? Do you want to celebrate the incarnation? Then go out into the world, taking Christ with you, empowered by Christ, with his message, his kingdom, his work, everything he's done, everything he is doing, everything he is going to do. And, and now don't just sit at home and, and toast one another and eat chocolate. That's what you're supposed to do. Amen. But now carry it into the world. Because there are people in this world who need to hear a joyful sound, uh, good news, that need help, that need someone to do something for them. And we should pray that God would send the workers and expect, expect that we ourselves are going to be the answer to that prayer. Because the fullness of time is now. There's, there's not another day to do this work. There's not other people to do this work. It's your work. It's your, your life. Those are the people God has put in your life. And even with this, I remember sitting there with you guys, and Dean would say things like this and be like, now i got to go find people. Where am I going to find people in need? And I, used to, and, and, and I would talk to Dean and be like, That's, uh, you know people, right? I said, yeah, I know people. He said, yeah, they have needs, Mike. You're, you're overcomplicating it. Right? Because why? Because <laughs> Jesus says they're leaderless, but they're ripe for harvest. Why? Because God the Father was working all along, preparing the work for Jesus to do. And so the work that you have to do tomorrow and the rest of the week, was, it's already lined up for you. It's already lined up for you. What you need to do is pray that God would send someone and then see, your, right, and then see the situations all over the place and have true compassion and have true love and, and preach and teach and instruct and comfort and have a word in season and out of season. Have a reason to give for the, the joy that is inside of you. Go out and do all of those things. That's why we're here today, is to equip you to do his work. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost, amen. Father, we thank you for the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his ministry. We thank you, Lord, that you have, in fact, sent us a good shepherd. I pray that we would rejoice in him. We would rejoice in his incarnation. We would rejoice in his advent, Lord, and that we would pray and that you would open doors for us, and that you would show us the work that you have since before time prepared for our hands to do. Amen.